Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 25, Thomas Lyon, Questioning Child Witnesses. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Tom Lyon. Tom is Guiardo Chair in Law and Psychology at the University of Southern California's Gould School of Law. Tom teaches evidence, law and psychology, and a course on child interviewing. His research focuses on child witnesses, child maltreatment, and domestic violence. Our podcast today focuses on one of Tom's new articles, co-authored with Stacia Stolzenberg and Kelly McWilliams, which is forthcoming in the journal Child Mistreatment. The article researches the effect of two specific tactics in questioning child witnesses. One is the hypothetical putative confession, hypothetically telling the child that the suspect confessed. The other is changing the specificity of questions, or the degree of leading in questioning. An example of this would be asking if something happened to the toy, as opposed to asking if the toy broke. Tom's research reveals some interesting results that could offer new tools for investigators going forward. Tom, pleasure to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. To begin our discussion, can you tell our audience a little bit about your rather specialized area of child witnesses? What are the unique challenges of the subfield, and why were you in particular drawn to them? Right. Well, children are obviously a lot different than adults, and it's an area of the law that just cries out for some sort of interdisciplinary cooperation. I started out as a lawyer working in dependency court in Los Angeles County handling child abuse and neglect cases, and this was in the late 80s. And what was amazing to me is when I was given my training, I was given a huge amount of legal materials to work through and virtually nothing about interacting with children. But child abuse cases, children are the primary witnesses. And it's clear that even if you have good rapport with adults, that how do you talk to a child, especially about something as sensitive as abuse, that clearly requires some kind of specialization. And so what I did is I I went back to school and got a PhD in developmental psychology because what developmental psychologists do, their whole enterprise is to figure out what children understand at what age and what is the most sensitive means by which to elicit their understanding without distorting their perceptions or their memory or their reports. And that's basically then what I do is I take a developmental psychology and apply it to child witness law. Let's move to your recent study then. What was the phenomenon that you and your co-authors were interested in exploring in your experiments? Our general idea is that child abuse is difficult for children to disclose. They're reluctant, they're embarrassed, they're afraid. Sometimes they lack, you know, a certain understanding of what occurs to them when abuse occurs. And because of that, we have to develop special techniques for overcoming their reluctance. At the same time that we have to be mindful of the fact that children are also much more suggestible than adults. 
And so in eliciting the truth from kids, we have to be extremely careful not to create false reports or false allegations. And there were two pieces to your study specifically where you tried to probe how to make these questions. Am I right? That's right. That's right. So yeah, so we were looking at two things. And to give you an overview, I've done a number of studies with this particular approach. We call it the broken toy paradigm. But the basic idea is that we create a situation in the laboratory where a child interacts with a stranger in an initially very positive way. And so the child's waiting for an interviewer to come back and a stranger appears. The stranger introduces the child to a series of toys. They're very fun, interactive toys. There's one for the stranger, one for the child. They play with them. But towards the end of the interaction, things start to go wrong. And particularly what happens is the stranger gives the child the child's toy to play with and they start to break. And the stranger expresses concerns, says, this isn't good. We might get in trouble. Please don't tell the lady when she comes back that we played with these. These are breakable. And so basically, we create a situation where the child has uh, positive feelings about this stranger, but something has gone wrong and the child feels implicated in what has gone wrong. And so the idea now is the child is motivated to keep this part of the interaction a secret. Then the interviewer returns and asks the child about the child's interactions with the stranger. And so we've set up as a situation where children will be more or less honest, depending on the child and we think, depending on the kinds of questions that the interviewer asks. And so in this particular version of the broken toy paradigm, what we studied is a couple of things. One, we call it the hypothetical putative confession. And to break that down, what that means is the interviewer says to the child, before asking the child questions about interactions with the stranger, says to the child, what if I said that the man who came in here told me everything that happened and he wants you to tell the truth? The idea is that the interviewer is saying as a hypothetical matter, what if I told you that that the uh, stranger has told the child everything that happened, but we don't say what everything that happened means. And the idea is that if we say this to a child, will the child be more forthcoming? And note that we haven't told the child anything about breakage. We haven't suggested anything about breakage, but we think the children who have in fact broken the toys will be more forthcoming. So that's the hypothetical putative confession. The other half of this study is we were interested in what kinds of more direct questions might uh, lead to children acknowledging breakage without leading the child to report breakage that didn't really occur. And so what we tested was yes-no questions, where we asked the children very direct questions about either something bad happening or whether the toy broke. But we follow up any yes answers with requests for additional information. And here we're actually testing a couple of different things. One is we're testing how specific do we need to be in order to elicit true reports without triggering false reports. And the other half of it is by asking these follow-up questions, can we distinguish between children's yes responses that are basically just false positives, false allegations without any content, and which are actually true allegations where the child is in fact disclosing breakage that occurred. Let me focus first on the hypothetical putative confession. Yeah. As I understand from the study, you've discovered something of a free lunch, if it even exists in this world. By using the hypothetical putative confession, you were able to get higher power, meaning greater detection of true positives, right. without incurring any increases or costs in terms of false positives. That's right. Like you say, that's the free lunch. That's what we hope for when we question children about suspected abuse, because there are lots of ways that we've discovered over the years to get children to disclose. 
But a lot of those methods are cajoling or coercing uh, reports from kids that will also lead to a lot of false reports. So what we think is one of the many strengths of the putative confession, and in this particular situation, the hypothetical putative confession, is that it can elicit those true reports without triggering false alarms. Was the result surprising to you? To me, children, you would think, are impressionable. If I had wagered beforehand, I would have bet that offering a putative confession would have run the risk of nudging them toward false positives as well, but you didn't see that. There are several reasons why. The first reason is that kids are naturally disinclined to say that bad things have happened. So there's a lot of talk about children's suggestibility, but you know what? Kids are more suggestible if you're suggesting positive events than negative events. They're more suggestible if you're suggesting plausible events than implausible events. So if you're asking a child about something that the child clearly understands is wrong, and in this case, you know, we're asking about something bad happening or a toy breaking, then there's really little reason to think that a child will easily cave if you ask the child some leading questions. And when we say to the child who hasn't broken any toys, when we say to the child, the man told me everything that happened, the child looks at you and thinks, oh, okay, everything that happened means we played with some toys and we had a lot of fun. So there's nothing about the putative confession that clearly suggests that something negative occurred. And even if we do start suggesting negative events, kids are naturally disinclined to say yes. Let me explore a little bit further this idea of the putative confession. There was a lot of concern that you express in your paper about police deception. Yeah. Which is, in many ways, why you decide to use a hypothetical confession versus an actual but potentially deceptive confession. It appears that we can actually avoid this ethical dilemma. But to your mind, if push came to shove, would you really object to the use of deception? Or is there a legal reason why you're trying to avoid the deception? There really isn't any legal reason why we couldn't do it. As as I'm sure you're aware, police are allowed to deceive suspects. Now, that creates a lot of alarm among psychologists because if you deceive suspects in such a way that you strongly suggest things that haven't occurred, you can create false reports. And then ethicists are also worried because they think that just as a matter of course, we shouldn't deceive interviewees. And I think they would argue that it's bad enough to try to deceive a suspect who you think might be guilty of a crime. But when you're talking to a victim who might be victimized by a crime, then it seems even more wrong to deceive. So no, I don't think that there's any legal impediment to using the putative confession, but I am sympathetic to people who say, you know, I don't really feel comfortable out and out deceiving a child. It creates this dilemma, though, because if it is in fact the case, and there's very good statistics to back this up, that a large percentage of children are not going to disclose abuse when you simply ask them about abuse. What we're saying is, is we're saying it would be, it's better to avoid any kind of deception with the child than to potentially uncover abuse that is otherwise going to go undetected. I think people need to really stop and think carefully about that before they say, oh, absolutely not. You know, I'm never going to do anything that might deceive a child. I think that's understandable enough. Then that leads me to my follow-up question here, which is, do we really think that children understand the rather subtle hypothetical language that's being used. For me, the first time I read the article and I read the what if I told you that the man dot dot dot, 
that didn't seem so hypothetical to me. <laughs> the first time I read that, I thought, oh, yeah, they're just saying that there's been a confession. Yeah. And now what do you have to say about it? Yeah, I agree. If you're someone who doesn't think you should do anything to mislead a child, and that's the reason why you object to the putative confession, where you just come out and say, the man told me everything that happened, then you would also object to the, what if I told you the man told me everything that happened? Because a young child is not going to make that distinction. And it sounds like with a quick read, even someone like you won't make that distinction. And I fully appreciate that. And so what we're dealing with is the argument that as a technical matter, we can't say something that isn't true. And if you take that position, then the hypothetical putative confession solves that problem. But I totally agree. I don't think it solves the problem that in order to get positive effects, we're saying something that young children will misconstrue. How about external validity here? Yeah. So I think one of the potential criticisms is that toy breakage is both less serious and a bit more in line with children's general experience. All children have experienced toy breakage at some point, whereas the child abuse allegations that you're really interested in are more serious and, and more traumatic. What's the likely effect in your mind to changing the context from the toy to the child abuse? I assume you've thought long and hard about these sorts of questions. Yeah, and I agree. They're totally different situations. So the child who's been abused, that's infinitely worse than breakage of a toy. It is important to note, though, that one of the things that we capture about the dynamic of abuse, which is important to note, is that children feel implicated in abuse. One thing that we do capture is that sense that the child is worried about their own self and they're worried about the other person getting into trouble. And that's what we try to capture. Now, what about just that these are wildly different in levels of seriousness? Well, I'm not sure which way that cuts, because on the one hand, that means the child is asked to reveal something that is much more serious. And you might say, so children are much less inclined to disclose. But on the other hand, the child also has all sorts of reasons why they do want to disclose abuse, obviously for their own protection. And so which way this cuts in the real world, I think we just don't know. I can tell you anecdotally, I interviewed interviewed a child a few years ago who police believed had witnessed her father fatally abuse a younger brother, a two-year-old brother. And the stepfather had told the girl, tell him the babysitter did it. The babysitter beat the boy. And the girl came in and told me this story. She was actually quite convincing. And it turned out that the stepfather really had confessed to the police. The little girl didn't know it. And so I said to the child, that after she told me this false story about the babysitter, I said, well, you know, your stepdad told us everything that happened and he wants you to tell the truth. And there was a pause and her eyes got really big and she said, he hit him so hard. And then she went on to tell me a, a very elaborate and consistent with the confession story about how the stepfather had killed the little boy. And then she even went on to tell me how this babysitter story had come about. So anecdotally, there's clearly evidence for it. And I think that that's the bottom line is we just don't know how this will play out in actual abuse investigations. These examples are just chilling. It, it's interesting on this podcast, we often talk about very theoretical evidentiary ideas, but here certainly the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Let me ask you a couple of broader questions about implications. So my first question here deals with evidentiary rules. My take is that your emphasis in this article and perhaps in a lot of your other work is on investigation and trying to get this information out of the child. 
Do the results also argue for special admissibility or other evidentiary rules for children in this context? Oh, definitely. So a lot of my work looks at what happens in court. As you can imagine, attorneys, it's not completely their fault because I think they're partly constrained by the awkwardness of courtroom procedure. But attorneys are just terrible in questioning children in court. And children's reports are just horribly skeletal. They're asked very direct, you know, often highly leading questions. And they just don't come off sounding either convincing or complete in their testimony. One just obvious problem is that testimony in open court is difficult enough for adults. It's near impossible for young children. Consistent with the obvious confrontation clause concerns we have in criminal court, I'm a big advocate for videotaping children's statements before trial and avoiding as much as possible relying on the child's testimony at trial to adjudicate these cases. Your research here does suggest we didn't have time to get into the other part of your study about the specificity with which you question. Yeah. But does the research also have broader implications for questioning generally? And my thought here is that perhaps legal actors need to think more scientifically or more deeply about how they question witnesses child or adult, because if you did it more scientifically, maybe you would be able to get better answers or better results. I draw somewhat of an analogy where we want to become more rigorous about our forensics. Maybe we should also become more rigorous about our interrogation as well. I totally agree with you, Ed. From the perspective of investigation, the British are way ahead of us in terms of understanding that a lot of the methods that we now use with children are actually very effective with suspects building rapport, asking open-ended questions, not using the kind of hard tactics that American police are used to using. And then by the same token, there hasn't been a lot of research on this, but when we look at attorney-client interactions, or attorney-witness interactions, you see the same thing where attorneys tend to run over their clients and their witnesses' statements. They don't stop to build the kind of rapport that's necessary to produce a really elaborative response. And I think you can totally think of this as this is another area for scientific study where we need to look at the kinds of interactions that attorneys have both before court and in court, and we can improve the process considerably. A final question for you, and it's one that I often ask all of our guests. Where would you like to see the research in this area go in the future? Perhaps for you, perhaps for an enterprising young professor who wants to make a name for him or herself. <laughs> right. And it's always good to recruit those bright young people into our uh, line of work, isn't it? I really like the move towards field experiments. I actually recently went to a empirical conference at UCLA where there are people who are using random assignment experimental techniques in the field. So we're moving towards that in terms of our interviewing techniques with kids. Other folks are moving towards that in terms of the effects of different types of representation on case outcomes. Others are using it with reference to say what kinds of background judges are given about candidates for bail. I think the more that law moves in the direction of rigorous experimental work, and not just in the lab, but in the field, that's really an exciting future prospect for legal research. Well, Tom, I really enjoyed the opportunity to learn about your work on child witnesses, and I'm glad we were able to share some of it with the audience. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure, Ed. Thank you for having me. Prior to this interview with Tom, 
I had had very little exposure to this area of child witnesses beyond perhaps Marilyn B. Craig, and so I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to talk to him on the podcast about his research. We in the evidence business often take witness testimony as a given or as pre-existent. Our chief focus is whether we should admit or exclude that testimony, not how to get the testimony in the first place. By contrast, Tom's work on child witnesses probes that precondition. How do we get information out of an uncooperative, intimidated, or otherwise reluctant witness? Can we be more scientific about our interrogation techniques so that we can get more true positives without incurring the cost of more false positives? These are questions raised not only with child witnesses, but also with respect to false confessions and informant testimony, among other areas. Tom and his co-authors seem to have found one instance of what I termed free lunch, at least with respect to child witnesses. Offering them a hypothetical putative confession actually gets children to talk without causing them to fabricate. That's indeed useful and powerful information for investigators going forward. I, for one, am looking forward to seeing more insights from psychology about how we can make better interrogations, both in the police station and in the courtroom. And it's great to know that we have people like Tom on the case. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer for this episode was Alex Nunn, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.